Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, presidents have often used the lame duck period to take some of their most unpopular and controversial actions. Pardons, for example, firings, and more. So with a defiant and erratic president like Trump, what will he do in the period where he no longer has to worry about re-election, but keeps all the powers of the presidency? We look at a lame duck Trump and what Congress and the GOP could do to contain any damage. Next on Forum, join us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. President-elect Biden announced today his 13-member coronavirus task force, and he's telegraphed plans for rejoining the Paris Climate Accord, repealing the so-called Muslim travel ban, and more. But even as Biden begins the transition process, many Republican leaders have held off on congratulating him, as Trump has refused to acknowledge defeat and is pursuing recounts and election lawsuits, even as many legal analysts say they're unlikely to stand up in court. In this hour, we look at what Trump's behavior signals for the transition and lame duck period. Joining us is David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. His most recent book is Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Thanks so much for joining us, David Frum. Thank you. Also with us is Jeremy Surrey, professor of global leadership, history, and public policy at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also host of the podcast, This is Democracy. Happy to have you on, Jeremy Surrey. Nice to be with you. Also with us, Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor at Politico. Hi, Anita Kumar. Thanks for having me back. Thanks for being here again. And, and I have to ask you, I mean, what are you hearing as the latest from the White House in terms of any indication that the president is closer to accepting the election results? 
You know, not really. The White House, like so many years, so many times we've seen in the last four years, is pretty divided on this one. The president has people telling him, like the first lady, his son-in-law, Jared Kushner, uh, who's a senior advisor there, that he should uh, publicly concede. And you have others at the campaign telling him that he should continue to fight. At the moment, we haven't seen any indication besides uh, that he is continuing to fight through lawsuits, through recounts, uh, through you know his public statements, through Twitter. Um, we, we haven't seen any indication of that, but there are people that are telling him he's going to have to get to that point. And how would you characterize the way Republican leaders are responding? I mean, we've certainly been hearing about this mix of silence or fight on with a very small number of people offering their congratulatory statements to Biden. Yeah, it's really the party's really been split. I mean, I would say that you could sort of tell what's going on in the party and they don't really know what to do by how many people you have seen come out and congratulate Joe Biden. You know, you, you've seen people like Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell try to take, try to balance this, right? He's not sort of doing either thing. He's, he's, uh, he's basically saying every legal vote has to count, but he's not saying that the president President Trump is right. He's not congratulating President-elect Biden. So you've seen a lot of people, a lot of Republicans not sure what to do. um, And it's split. Uh, A lot of the sort of very, you know, the Trump supporters, his his crowd in the last four years have come out and said, yeah, he should continue to fight. But you've seen others that have been supportive of him. And I'll mention Chris, Chris Christie, the former governor of New Jersey, who's sort of an outside advisor to him, basically saying he doesn't think that the president has uh, the evidence there and that he needs to either come forward with that or or move on. David, from could I get your reaction to all this? I mean, we know that George W. Bush, the former president, has offered his congratulations and a handful of others. But can you just give us some insight into what Republicans are likely weighing here and what risks they're taking with the sort of silence and split in their response? Well, I think it, we have to begin by think, thinking harder about what exactly President Trump is doing. And although we call it fighting, it, it isn't really fighting. Um, those who will remember the 2000 recount when both um, uh, George Bush and Al Gore were fighting over those ballots in Florida will rem- remember what that looked like. Both of them assembled top tier legal teams. Both of them were both in court immediately um, with arguments, and both of them were in the court of public opinion with, with major statements in ways designed to sway not their diehard supporters, you don't need to worry so much about those, but but people in the middle. And both were focused on retaining um, the loyalty of senior members of their party. They had strategy sessions in which Al Gore would work with senior Democrats and um, George W. Bush would seek a senior Republican to maintain a united front. None of those things are happening. There is no Trump legal team. There is no argument for the court of public opinion. They weren't on the Sunday shows um, this uh, this past weekend to make any kind of case. Instead, what you have is a lot of fundraising and then a lot of appeals to the grievances of the most diehard Trump supporters and a lot of invocation of stories that, I, I mean, Matt Schlapp, uh, the head of the American Conservative Union and the husband of White House Communications Director Mercedes Schlapp, he was on Twitter with a story about how a van marked Biden-Harris on the side, um, drove up to some post, and somebody saw it but didn't take any pictures. And the, the van then swapped out some ballots. for. 
who's that story for? That story's only for the QAnon people. So it's not a fight. It's a lot of whining and complaining and fundraising. It's more about the president's psychological needs and, uh, and the weakness of the people around him than it is about a coherent plan actually to contest an election, which, by the way, at this point, is heading toward a margin of 52%, a, a margin that is uncontestable. Do you think he's putting at risk at all, uh, Trump, I mean, the extent to which the Republican Party will welcome him and allow him to have a tremendous, tremendous amount of influence and relevance with the way that he's behaving post this election outcome, David, from? I think a lot of his troubles actually are, are only beginning. I mean, I think right now, many Republicans can say, you know, I, I don't like the way he talks, but look, he did increase his share of the vote from 46% last time to maybe 48% this time. He did increase the number of vote from 63 million last time to maybe 70 million this time. And he seems to have made some inroads with some Latino community. So, so maybe there's something there. This time next year, when Donald Trump is struggling with all kinds of legal problems, with revelations about his businesses, I, I don't think his standing is going to uh, look the way it is. And if there is rapid disease and economic improvement, I, I think the world will just look like a, a very different place. Um, Al Gore, who in 2000 won more votes than George W. Bush, um, who really did have a very powerful legal case, um, you, maybe it wasn't quite successful, but it persuaded half the Supreme Court, he didn't mm -hmm. run again in 2004. If it wasn't there for Gore in his party four years later, it's not going to be there for Trump in his party four years after this. Jeremy Surrey, David Trump brings up legal entanglements. Can you remind us what some of those are? Because one of the big questions that has come out uh, that people seem to be asking on social media and so forth is whether or not he will try to protect himself from those by using the president's pardon powers. Well, this is a unique moment because we have a president uh, who has lost an election, who faces legal prosecution on a scale we've never seen with a sitting president before. And he's also deeply in debt in a way that it's hard to find historical precedent mm. for either. And everything we know about President Trump's behavior is that he does everything he can to enrich himself, protect himself, and protect his friends at costs to the law, to national interests, and to democratic norms. And there's no reason to expect him to behave differently. I'm quite sure he will try to use his pardoning power to pardon himself and pardon uh, his close associates, as he has already done with Roger Stone and is likely to do with Michael Flynn and others. Um, but he's going to have a lot of problems with that. First of all, it's legally questionable whether you can pardon yourself. Second, uh, there is a longstanding statutory assumption that you cannot use your pardon in exchange for goods, in exchange for favors uh, as a quid pro quo. But most significant of all, you can't pardon yourself for a crime you haven't been charged for yet. And the charges against um, President Trump, uh, then he'll be former President Trump, uh, regarding a bank fraud in New York, tax evasion, many of those are state charges for which he cannot pardon himself and charges for which he cannot even put, a, put together a pardon before he's been charged. And then there's the issue of jurisdiction. Uh, as I said, many of these would not be federal crimes, and he only has federal pardoning power. So the pardoning issue is something I'm sure he's going to try to do, uh, but I don't think he will succeed in providing himself the protection he wants, but he will certainly abuse the power of the pardon, and that will be something we will have to deal with after his presidency. Well, there's been some suggestion that 
Vice President Pence could offer a preemptive pardon if he went as far as to say resign a few minutes before the end of his presidency, and then Pence could come in and do these preemptive pardons. Is that more legally sound? Not in the least. Uh, first of all, if there's any evidence that it's a planned quid pro quo, uh, then that would be legally challengeable. This was always the question about Gerald Ford's pardoning of Nixon, and Gerald Ford always insisted, and many believed, that he did not uh, take the presidency with the presumption, with a deal, uh, to give Nixon uh, a pardon. If there's any evidence of a deal that undermines uh, the legal standing of the pardon, and there still is the problem of what would... Uh, Pence be pardoning Trump for. If he hasn't been charged with these crimes yet, you can't pardon someone for something they haven't been charged with yet. You don't get a, you know, a force field shield from prosecution. The pardon is supposed to be directed at a particular charge at a particular moment. And then there's also the question, why would Pence do that? Uh, that would be the end of Pence's career, the end of his political career, uh, if he did that. Gerald Ford almost lost the Republican nomination for president in 1976 because of how unpopular his pardon of Richard Nixon was. I don't imagine Pence would even want to do that. And uh, Anita Kumar, as Jeremy Surrey was saying, there is this question of jurisdiction. So can you just remind us, you know, of what the state uh, level charges are against Trump? Because those are not things that he could pardon himself for. Yeah, so the Manhattan District Attorney is looking into, you know, it started out looking into these payments that uh, President Trump or his campaign made to uh, basically pay off two women uh, that say they had affairs with him, just these hush money payments that we've heard so much about for, for a while now. So they started looking at that, looking at some of the court filings, though, it does appear that they have expanded that investigation or, you know, are are looking into other things. I don't know if they'll charges will come from that, but they're you know, starting to look at things with his financials. Remember, the prosecutors there are the ones that want his financial records and have been fighting to get them. So they're looking into, you know, it's now all sorts of things or could be all sorts of things, whether he inflated his you know, worth, whether he tried to get economic development money and tax breaks based on uh, things that, you know, uh, money that he doesn't have or inflated money. So they're looking at all sorts of things. And that's really the criminal investigation, though there are others. We're talking with Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and associate editor of Politico, David Fromm, staff writer at The Atlantic and former speechwriter for President Bush, Jeremy Surrey, professor of global leadership, history and public policy at the University of Texas at Austin. And you, our listeners, what questions do you have about this period leading up to the January inauguration? What do you what questions do you have about how an orderly transition could work? 866-733-6786 is the number to call. You can get in touch on Twitter or Facebook or email us at forum at kqed.org. I'm Mina Kim. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have prevailed, but President Trump and his allies so refuse to acknowledge defeat, and some White House watchers say that doesn't bode well for the next 70-plus days of a lame-duck Trump presidency. We're talking about what we can expect during this transition period and what Trump might do. I'm joined by David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic, former speechwriter for President Bush and author of the book Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy. Jeremy Surrey is with us, professor of global leadership, history, and public policy. Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, also host of the podcast, This is Democracy, and Anita Kumar, White House correspondent and editor for Politico. You, our listeners, are also with us. And if you want to weigh in, give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum, or email your questions to forum at kqed.org. So, David, from in terms of this lame duck period, you had a piece in The Atlantic where you were talking about guarding against a lame duck Trump. First, what are your thoughts on what Jeremy Surrey was saying about how it would actually be quite difficult for Trump to pardon himself or to try to do any, you know, quote unquote, shenanigans with Mike Pence around that? Because I know that you've been concerned about a self-pardon crisis, but also other things that you're concerned that the president could do in this time that are especially dangerous. Well, from President Trump's point of view, he does have a very wide and pardon power. But as Jeremy said, he's got a couple of things to worry about. First, he can't pardon state crimes and their active state um, investigations against him. Um, second, people who receive a pardon lose their Fifth Amendment rights um, because the Fifth Amendment doesn't say you have a right not to talk to prosecutors. It says you have a right. In- well, if you have no criminal jeopardy, then you lose your right to keep silence if you have knowledge of crimes. And so uh, President Trump would have to worry if he pardoned a Paul Manafort, what could a Paul Manafort be asked? That's why, by the way, President Trump didn't pardon Roger Stone, but only commuted his sentence. That allows Roger Stone to refuse to uh, continue to refuse to talk to prosecutors. Um, as for the question about Mike Pence, yeah, Mike Pence would have some real concerns there. And here's the relevant case to keep in mind. Um, in the middle 1970s, uh, the state of Tennessee had a very corrupt governor named Roy Bland. He sold liquor licenses for bribes, that kind of thing. Um, Blanton lost office in 1978, and he went out the same way he came in, by selling a bunch of pardons to people in prison. Um, This was all challenged after the fact, and the Tennessee Supreme Court said, no, Blanton's pardons were were valid, even though they were corruptly issued. If they're formally correct, they're binding, and the people that um, Blanton pardoned, um, they, they go free. However, Blanton himself went to penitentiary for taking bribes. And so Mike Pence would be faced with this prospect, as Jeremy said. Um, yeah, he could pardon Trump and that would be valid. But now the question of could Pence, if, if we're saying you can't pardon yourself, Pence can't pardon himself. And that means he faces legal risk for the pardon, pardon to Trump. And in the case of a Trump pardon, if Trump tried it, he'd have to worry. I mean, you can fill out the form, but you don't find out whether the Supreme Court agrees with you until it's way too late. Um, so that, those create a series of, of problems. But as you ask about this transition project we did, what we discovered was the window for Trump to disrupt the transfer of power is quite small and required a much more ambiguous result than, than came out of the election of 2020. Um, I think the window for Trump to, to, do, um, to try to hold on to power, disrupt or prevent the transition, that time is gone. But we discovered that the president had very large abilities to 
sabotage the transfer of power to make things uh, to make things difficult, as he's trying now to do, for example, by not releasing the transition funds to the Biden campaign. There are a lot of opportunities for nonfeasance in the coming months, as well as malfeasance, including just ceasing to do his job, just to take get on the plane, go to Mar-a-Lago, pout, refuse to come out, refuse to sign anything, refuse to cooperate in any way, um, and let the government of the country spiral uh, in, uh, over the, this winter of probably mm. worsening COVID numbers. Well, basically, <laughs> Stephen tweets, I think Trump is going to try to get himself pardoned. Uh, a guy writes, ex-presidents get top secret security briefings. There are myriad ways in which Trump could leverage such information for personal financial benefit. Can a Biden administration refuse him this information? I mean, Jeremy Surrey, what do you think about that? It's something I've worried quite a lot about. Uh, we know that uh, President Trump believes that information he receives belongs to him and that he doesn't have any obligation to maintain traditional standards of secrecy. He already has violated these standards of classification time and time again, including with the Russian ambassador Lavrov uh, early in his administration. And we also know that President Trump believes that he can monetize the power and privileges he has as president. And we know he's desperate for money as well as for protection from legal prosecution. So there's every reason to believe that he would use the access he has to information to curry favors as he already has with foreign leaders in Russia, in Saudi Arabia, and elsewhere. And I also don't think it's beyond the range of possibility that he would even seek legal sanctuary overseas. I, I don't think it's probable, but I think it's possible that we could see our first ex-president fleeing the country if he believes he's not able to pardon himself and he believes his financial interests are best served by sharing information with a foreign leader who will provide him with sanctuary. This is not uncommon in other societies. We just haven't seen it in the United States because we haven't had a president of this level of corruption, uh, at least in recent memory. Well, Paul writes, I fully expect Mr. Trump to do everything he can to undermine the transition of power. If, as he mentioned a couple of weeks ago in a campaign speech, he leaves the country, I suggest he seeks residence somewhere without an extradition treaty with the U.S. Rick writes, can your guests comment on the transition funds that are supposed to be available to the new president, but won't be as long as Trump hangs on? And, and similarly, Leslie writes, with government facilities and millions of dollars blocked to Biden's transition until Trump concedes, what are Biden's options? He's already being hobbled. Can you talk about that, Anita Kumar, just quickly before we dive into some of the answers to those questions? I mean, Biden has launched his sort of transition website. He's got his transition staff starting to go and trying to get information and, and review uh, the documents and budgets of the White House right now. I mean, what's happening? Yeah, I mean, well, definitely there are some things being held up by a Trump appointee. So that is correct. But I would just say, look around at what we've seen the last couple of days. The, you know, president-elect is is meeting with people, is making announcements, is, um, you know, going to be making appointments. And we've we saw uh, some today made on the coronavirus. So I do think that they're full steam ahead talking to them about that. Um, it, in all ways, they are moving forward as the president elect and vice president elect. But, yes, there are some things that the Trump administration should be doing. You know, there's space that is given to, um, you know, the the future president um, transition space for office space. Uh, I remember visiting there when President when Donald Trump was president elect at that time. There are funds for that. There are various things that it just ways that that uh, power is transferred and and so that it's smooth. So 
the President Trump can decide to hold some things up. I think he's going to be under great pressure uh, not to do that as things go forward. And as, you know, eventually here, his legal uh, avenues will expire. They will be gone. We've already seen him lose multiple lawsuits. We will see what happens with the recounts. At some point here, there is going to be a change. It's just a question of when. Well, Jeremy, sorry, what are the things that could keep him in check? Where where could the pressure that Anita Kumar is talking about, where could it come from? Well, I think there are a number of places, and the most important one is from Congress. Uh, members of Congress, even Republicans, have to be concerned about the rising COVID crisis. And uh, they also have to be concerned about the fact that Americans around the country want assistance. They need medical assistance. They need money for unemployment benefits that have been denied. Um, and uh, there is an interest in getting things done along those lines. President Trump has been the, bi the biggest impediment to this, uh, and they need to uh, put pressure on him to actually address these issues. They also, I think, have to begin a process of actually making it clear to him that there will be costs to his administration right now if he doesn't follow through. For example, he spends money to go into different areas. When he travels, he spends money on projects that he believes are important to him. That money can be cut off by Congress. Uh, if Congress passes legislation that's veto-proof, that money will be denied uh, to him. That's a drastic measure, but I think it's a measure that Congress needs to put on the table. Beyond that, the courts need to also step in. Uh, there are legal limits to what presidents are supposed to do. Uh, there are legal questions about using public facilities for personal campaign purposes. Every time now that he challenges the results and lists and goes out with a frivolous lawsuit of one kind or another, he's doing that from government property. Um, and so there need to be legal sanctions. And most important of all, everyone who works for Trump needs to be reminded that they will be held legally accountable. So the Trump appointee who so far has not turned over transition resources, if it is found that she is operating out of political uh, inclinations, not out of the inclinations of her civil service responsibilities, she will be legally prosecutable. And everyone needs to be reminded of them. You serve the constitution. You don't serve the president and the president will not be around to protect you after January 20th. So remember who you serve and people need to be told they will be held accountable for their service and constitutional responsibilities. Again, we're talking with Jeremy Surrey, professor of public policy at the University of Texas at Austin, David Frum with The Atlantic, Anita Kumar with Politico, and you, our listeners, if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786 is the number. Twitter or Facebook, uh, you can reach us at KQED Forum there, or you can email us, forum at kqed.org. David Frum, I'm really struck by Jeremy Surrey bringing up the pandemic. I mean, we know the, the latest stats are are terrible. I mean, we have more than 10 million Americans that we're hearing about, an average daily case number of 100,000 concerns, about 100,000 more dead. And there has been this real question, and especially based on some of the language coming out of the, the White House, that the president is basically going to throw in the towel on the pandemic. What do you think is the likelihood of that? Um, I think you should, when you're thinking about things that Trump will do over the next few months, divide them in your head between malfeasance and nonfeasance. Um, the malfeasance is difficult to do. It requires the cooperation of others. Um, it, it, it is scary, as, as Jeremy said. It, it puts individual people at risk. And in the end, after some hemming and hawing, I think we'll find um, the malfeasance is more or less under control. It's the nonfeasance you have to worry about. And with the nonfeasance, I think he's, he's going to go to the spinal tap 11 on that one. And partly because he, 
psychologically he, he can't i mean he's he's been wounded um he's be, he's he's acting out uh, not with a strategy or a plan, but because the country's wounded him, and therefore he has to punch the country back. And he wants you to get sick because that serves you right; you deserve it. Um, so he—it's he, uh, not like they've been feasing so much to coin a word already, but it, the non-feasance <laughs> will be will, will be nearly total over the, the coming weeks. And so it, it's going to be incumbent on each of us. The, the good news is, in the COVID area, we all have a lot of responsibility in our own hands. We can make individual decisions to mask, to um, even in the winter months when it's more difficult to maintain social distance and get us through to a period when a vaccine may be available and when responsible public officials will be available. I think one other thing we can hope for is that governors in the in in states will see the the Trump method of treating um, Corona as a hoax or a personal insult, that didn't pay off for him in the end. And so those governors who are thinking about political futures may want to, uh, like a Ron DeSantis, who is thinking about a national career, um, you know, he may want to think about being a little bit more of a responsible figure post-Trump than he was than he was before. Um, but it's, 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 look, there's going to be no, we're not going to stop paying the costs of the Trump presidency on election day or even inauguration day, it's going to take a long time to repair the damage that was done and more damage will continue to be done. Let me go to caller Michael in Boston. Hi, Michael. Hi. Um, first, quickly, maybe I'm overly suspicious, but I've always assumed that since he only cares about raw power, that he would try to leverage non-prosecution in exchange for not calling on his followers to make the streets run red. Hmm. I really think he would do it if he thought he could. Um, my specific question, though, is do pardons really have to be that specific? Because I recall that Gerald Ford's pardon wasn't specific at all. It just said any and all crimes. Jeremy Surrey. Uh, and that's legally questionable. Um, pardons in general have to be specific. You cannot pardon someone and give them a long-term forever get-out-of-jail card. Uh, even the Ford pardon was at least interpreted as being specific to the Watergate charges for which there were at least charges in the House of Representatives. They had actually been approved by the House uh, Impeachment Committee. So um, in the case where there are no charges on the table, not even in Congress, it would be very hard to craft something that sounded like it was keyed to a particular t set of actions without being a universal pardon, a universal freedom from all prosecution, which certainly would not be acceptable. They might find a way around this but it would be a very difficult thing to do. And it would certainly, again, not apply to state crimes in any way. Michael, thanks for the question. We're getting reports that Trump has fired his defense secretary, Mark Esper, in a tweet. And I know that firings, uh, very, very deep, could be done deeply and widely uh, in this lame duck period. I'm wondering first, Anita Kumar, if you could talk a little bit about what you might know on the latest in terms of firings and the powers that he's tried to exercise around those for the lame duck period. Yeah, um, the, that is correct. He did fire the defense secretary and replaced him uh, for this brief period of time anyway by the National Counterterrorism Center director. Uh, his name is Christopher Miller. So, um, you know, we had heard for quite some time there's uh, that, you know, Secretary Esper would be on his way out. Uh, he had a resigna resignation letter prepared. Uh, he's not the only one. We've been hearing that President Trump, as one of my colleagues wrote, is going to treat this two months as a second term, meaning he's going to come in there, 
clean house, do every try to do everything that he wanted to do by executive order, all the pardons, all those types of things, but sort of push it into these two months as much as he can. But remember, he will face enormous pushback by people, including members of his own party and including, uh, you know, members of Congress. Well, what do you think about that, Jeremy, sir, in terms of his power to fire? I mean, I know that there are certain certain procedures that that he must go through to be able to do them in some cases and with some positions. But do you see him trying to expand that and using it? I think so. Everything we know about uh, President Trump is that he's a vindictive individual. He takes uh, personal loyalty as the most important sign of someone's competence. And he believes that people like Secretary of Defense Esper, who have pushed back on his efforts to misuse the military, for example, that they're being disloyal. Uh, But as you say, there are limitations on what he can do. For example, just now he has fired... um, the Secretary of Defense, and he has tried to promote the head of the National Counterterrorism Center, that's actually against the law. The Deputy Secretary of Defense, according to the statute, takes over if the uh, Secretary of Defense is removed or unable to do his job. So unless he's fired the Deputy Secretary, which maybe he has in another tweet that I haven't seen yet, uh, unless he's fired the Deputy Secretary, he has problems there. Uh, But the larger issue is he can fire a lot of people, and he might even be doing them a favor uh, by firing them. Almost everything he does by executive order can and probably will be reversed uh, by Joe Biden when Joe Biden uh, moves into the White House uh, on January 20th. Uh, The issues, as David said so well, it seems to me, are really the issues about personal corruption and then the inaction. And that replays the terrible experience our country had in the transition from Herbert Hoover to Franklin Roosevelt, when in another period of crisis, when our economy was plummeting, our banks were failing, the president refused to act. I fear we're entering that situation here. He will obstruct efforts to distribute the vaccine. He will obstruct efforts to provide people with the proper information and help they need. And quite frankly, tens of thousands of people will probably die because of the actions of this president during this transition. And there's very little we can do about that. And that's a horrible statement about where our country is today. Well, we're again getting a lot of questions. Albert tweets, I'm so baffled by the Republican leadership. Their complicity with his behavior is downright treasonous. Laura writes, why does the GOP remain silent regarding Trump's claims when they have accepted the results of all the other races? So still a lot of people who are wondering whether and when or if. The GOP will step up in this process. We'll be talking more about this. We're asking our listeners if they'd like to weigh in on their concerns about this period leading up to the January inauguration when Trump holds all the powers of the presidency but has lost. Also, what questions that you have about an orderly transition and how it should work. Again, you can call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786, or reach us by email, forum at KQED. Org, or get in touch on Twitter or Facebook at KQED Forum. I'm Mina Kim. More after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. 
This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're looking at what the transition period could mean with a Trump presidency. Uh, we're talking with David Frum, staff writer at The Atlantic, author of Trumpocalypse, Restoring American Democracy, Jeremy Surrey, professor of global leadership, history and public policy at the University of Texas. He's also host of the podcast, This is Democracy. We also have Anita Kumar with us, associate editor at Politico and a White House correspondent. And you, our listeners, are with us. Let me go to Karen in Ventura. Hi, Karen. Hi, Karen. Are you there? And we'll try to see if we can get Karen back. Let me go next to Sangeeta in San Jose. Hi, Sangeeta. Hi. Hi, you're on. Can you hear me? I can. Okay. So my question is, come December 8th, if both the presidential candidates claim victory, what legal recourse is there? Does then the Supreme Court or the military decide who the commander-in-chief will be? Uh, Sangeeta, thanks. Jeremy Suri, do you want to respond to this? This, of course, has come up a lot, especially pre-election as well. Sure. So um, almost every state, in fact, I think virtually every state is required to designate electors uh, for the individual who wins the uh, popular vote in that state. So each state is required to certify who the winner is, and they are certified, then they're required to uh, designate electors for that person. So what will happen in mid-December is each of the states will certify. Uh, there's every reason to believe they will. The margins of victory for Joe Biden are larger than the margins were for Donald Trump. Most recalls or recounts only a change, a few votes in a recount. So the chances are that everything will remain exactly as it is, and you will have electors designated in Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, and various other states for Joe Biden, equaling probably 306. And then they will cast their votes, uh, and those votes will, when read in Congress in, on January 6th, they will uh, show that Joe Biden has more than 270 electoral votes. And then under the Constitution, he will become president on January 20th. There's really not anything that the Republicans can do about that. And, you know, Michael tweets, in 2000, Vice President Gore did not concede until December 13th, yet the heavens did not fall. Let Trump exhaust his legal avenues. No one can file suit without alleging facts. I mean, is Michael's attitude about this right in your view, Jeremy Surrey? Uh, not really. I, I see Michael's point. Uh, but in the case of uh, 2000, two things are very important to keep in mind. We we had a legitimate set of disputes about how ballots should be read, how they should be tabulated. This had to do with hanging chads, among many other things. Uh, and both the Bush and Gore campaigns promised that they would respect the results. They would respect the results when this was resolved. And as soon as it was resolved by the Supreme Court, resolved in ways that Gore and his team thought were inappropriate, nonetheless, Gore came forward and conceded. Uh, we have seen no behavior like that from the Trump administration. They are making things up. They are behind in four to five states. They have been throwing out all kinds of self-contradictory accusations, and they have made no commitment to abide by the process at all. So this is a very different situation uh, from that. And quite frankly, there's no conceivable path by which four states will reverse their electoral votes. So this is simply an effort to divide us and an effort to sow uh, discomfort and disbelief in our democratic institutions. And that is truly horrible behavior and it is not equivalent to anything we have seen in our lifetimes. And let me, may I add a Yeah, David Trump, please. On that because I, I was there. Um, look, the heavens didn't fall, but the recount was terribly expensive. I don't mean this as a partisan point one way or the other, but I, I was there. Um, and it had a real consequence for the Bush administration, as it would have had for Gore if Gore had won, um, that 
Bush got half as much transition time as um, other presidents did, or that Gore would have had half as much. I mean, until as late as June of 2001, there were only two Senate confirmed people in the entire Department of Defense. Um, and I, I remember as a, a writer in the White House and therefore non-Senate confirmed, uh, often being kind of uncomfortable with how much scope I had to do things because the people you would normally circulate drafts to weren't there. So you want to circulate something? Uh, is the president's going to make some statement about um, trade promotion authority? Well, we don't have a USTR confirmed yet. Um, so you're sort of on your own. Uh, so, the, And as I said, this is the, Vice President Gore would have been in exactly the same situation had he prevailed. Cutting the time really matters. The, we, um, it, we have a fairly limited period in which to get a gigantic administration hired. Presidents um, employ, very choose large numbers of people, arguably too many, but they have to fill those slots and it takes time. And every one of those people, by the way, has to go through a vetting process, um, has to uh, clear, clear their finances, has to clear their secu do security clearances. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure the Biden people are much more ready to go than many past administrations, um, but it will have a cost, not a world ending cost, but a real and meaningful cost. Well, let me go to Eric in Emeryville. Hi, Eric. Join us. Yeah, hi. I, I want to know why does it take two months? And, and part of the, the reason is probably what was, was just said, that it takes a while to ramp up and get people hired. But as of January 1, this should be the new administration, not two months. This gives so much time for the, the leaving president to just cause chaos. And then also, can we in the future um, pass laws that don't allow a, a presidential candidate or any high public official to personally tweet, tweet through your press secretary, pre, pre, you know, do through your administration. But these personal tweets, if Trump had been an individual employee and we had him tweeting as much as he did, we'd fire him. He's not doing anything done. He's just tweeting all the time. Eric, thanks. I mean, Dean tweets he'll do as much damage as he can up until he's dragged out the door. And this listener says, what political reform should we make to prevent a future Trump who is a more competent authoritarian? I mean, David, from yes, in terms of thinking about the kinds of changes that we need to think about in mm -hmm. terms of what this presidency has taught us, if, if we could even limit it to the transition period. But, you know, yeah. what do you think? Well, um, Representative Adam Schiff from California has introduced um, a bill with, I think, a dozen different reforms, um, most of them pretty technical, uh, that I think we've learned. From, I, I wrote about it at The Atlantic, and you can you can see the list there um, about some things that need to be done to, to, and that we've learned from the Trump experience. It shouldn't be so optional, for example, whether a president complies with subpoenas from Congress or not. It's very hard to make an administration answer questions if they don't want to. Um, there are almost no penalties for lying to Congress. It's very, very rare that that is ever, ever punished. You, you, that's, that's something you might want to fix. Um, I do think some problems are politically self-correcting. Trump's behavior, we had in 2008, 2009, from Bush to Obama, Obama probably the best transition in American history. And everyone uh, who was involved with that um, has talked about it for years afterwards. And it built relationships. And one of the, one of the reasons um, that uh, you see the, the uh, warm personal relationship between the Bush and Obama families was because of Obama's um, appreciation of, in the middle of the financial crisis of 2009, um, the very elegant way that they were given information. Bush didn't lock up decisions for him in advance. Uh, that's going to be a model that people who are in government will remember, and this will also be a model. And I think most of the time, for uh, most of the time, 
people understand that doing a good job gets you politically rewarded and get doing a bad job gets you politically punished. And uh, people in government will have their own personal incentives for doing a better job. And Trump will stand as an example of things not to do that will uh, be a painful lesson, but a lesson for, for generations. Well, Curtis writes, post-Trump, the future looks better, but vigilance and hard work remain. The next four years with a looming long-term recession and pandemic precautions will give an eager populace an opportunity to create a feeling of Democrats' failure and to rise from Trump's ashes. I mean, Anita Kumar, I know you've done some reporting on this, but what do you see as really key to keeping the Trump brand alive and the options that are before him? Yeah, he's very eager to stay in the limelight. That shouldn't be surprising. Um, he is sort of weighing different things that he he can do. I mean, a few different things I've heard are um, something that he talked about in 2016 when he didn't think he was going to win. Um, and but then, of course, he did was some was some, was creating or uh, buying some kind of uh, conservative network, television network or uh, some kind of media outlet that he can continue to get his message out. He wants to stay relevant. I've, I'll be interested to hear what others say, but I've heard, you know, when you're a president and you're term, you've been defeated for your second term, you'll find out very quickly that you're not so relevant anymore uh, for the couple months, but also after that. So, but he wants to con can stay in there, stay in that, uh, you know, stay relevant, uh, endorse candidates, uh, talk about things that need to be done. The question is whether the party will follow him. You'll see a lot of people not following him. They'll be, feel freed up to say what they want to say after he leaves office. But you'll see people following him. I mean, didn't get all these many votes just so people could turn away from him. It has been, uh, a, a, he has brought people into the party that weren't there before. So that's the question of whether he stays a part of the Republican Party. I've also heard speculation he could form his own party. And of course, there are some people saying to him, uh, you can run again. And he has talked to people about that. That has been brought up to him uh, in these last few days that he could run again in 2024. Uh, that would be a very, very difficult thing for him to do. There are a couple of sort of logistical questions that we're getting here. Paul asks, will those fired by Trump lose their government pensions? And how can we keep Trump from collecting his? And this listener writes, can the next president revoke Trump's security clearance like Trump did to others? Jeremy Surrey, do you have any thoughts on this? Certainly on the latter, yes. Security clearances are, are offered at the pleasure of the new administration, and there is a very elaborate process, and the Trump people circumvented that process, especially for Trump's family. And there's no reason to believe, in fact, I'm certain that the intelligence community, uh, and this is nonpartisan members of the intelligence community, will do everything they can to prevent uh, Trump and his family from having continued access because they have been seen from day one as uh, problems for the maintenance of, of security. Um, now, in terms of pensions, those who are fired from their positions, uh, they do get to keep their pensions. And, and, and I'm not sure we should get into the world of taking away people's pensions. I don't think that's really what this is about. I'd rather we hold people legally accountable uh, for their actions after the fact. And there'll be plenty of legal matters to address. And anyone who's convicted of a felony would, in that case, 
then lose uh, their pension. I did want to make one quick point about the presidential transition, the length of the transition, which came up. And David uh, had some wonderful comments about this and insights from his own experience. It's just worth noting that historically, there's been this long transition, which most other societies don't have, because when our constitution was written, it took a long time to get from one place to another. And initially the transition, the inauguration occurred in March. We moved it in 1933 to January after the long transition from Hoover to Roosevelt. I think we should consider reducing the transition time further. Perhaps the new government should take uh, over December 15th. We don't need this much time. It only creates time for the outgoing administration to do bad things. A shorter transition, a constitutional amendment to change that would be a good thing, and it might even have bipartisan support. Again, Jeremy, sir. About, 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 about classification since they've come up. Sure. Uh, but I, I did some reporting on this when President Trump threatened to take away the classifications um, from past CIA um, heads. And this is what they explained to me. When you retain your clearance after you leave office, that's a permission, but it's not a guarantee of access. The, the reason former CIA heads and, and people like that retain their clearance is so that if there's a crisis and the current head of the CIA wants the advice of past heads of the CIA, or if a current president wants the advice of past presidents, as President Kennedy wanted Eisenhower's advice during the Cuban Missile Crisis, they don't have to do a bunch of paperwork to get you permission to see the documents. But what documents you actually have access to is entirely up to the people in control of the clearance process at that time. So Trump's post-presidential clearances mean he's entitled to read anything that the president cares to show him, but he doesn't have a claim of right to see everything. It is a total courtesy. And if his own behavior has violated the rules of courtesy, um, he will find that he doesn't get the kind of briefings afterwards that other past presidents have had. Again, David Frum is staff writer at The Atlantic and former speechwriter for President George W. Bush. Anita Kumar is an associate editor at Politico and a White House correspondent. And Jeremy Suri is a professor of global leadership, history, and public policy at the University of Texas at Austin. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, let me go to Carrie in San Jose. Hi, Carrie. Hi. Um, Trump could salvage some of his legacy by uh, facilitating a generous stimulus package, and I would hope that at least some of those around him would encourage him to do so, something that um, helps the, the states and cities that are in such desperate need and individuals as well. And I'd like to know from your guests what they think the probability of that happening is and how we can appeal to his, um, his ego, essentially, to get him to do, do it. What do you think, David, from? Um, this is where weird Trump politics fades into normal Republican politics. Um, the, if there's a Republican Senate, they have Republican, normal Republican reasons for wanting a smaller rather than a bigger stimulus. Um, and so nothing. So that's going to be a problem anyway, or an issue anyway. And that will require the ac energy and activity of a new president to resolve, because President Trump will have no interest in trying to solve the authentic disagreements that exist between congressional Republicans and congressional Democrats. Well, Sally writes, what measures, if any, can be taken to ensure that all records in the White House are preserved? Again, David, from measures that can be taken to ensure that all records are preserved. Well, this is a less daunting problem than people think. It's actually quite, as Oliver North discovered during Iran-Contra, it's quite difficult in the computer age to erase a record. There are record there, um, uh, so unless um, President Trump and the people around him have been preserving their records entirely on 
WhatsApp and other personal devices, which is already, they've, they've broken the law already. Um, the records are, are in all kinds of places where it's going to be difficult for them to, to get at them. And many, many agencies have copies of these things. Um, and uh, so I, I don't know. I mean, I think there will be, uh, tr Trump did do a lot of business on his private phone, but we don't have, that means the records don't exist in the first place, not that they're not going to be destroyed. And we just have a few minutes of uh, Jeremy Surrey. I don't know if you want to weigh in on the records question, but also just anything else that we haven't gotten to yet that you are really worried about or watching closely over this transition period. So uh, on the records, I'll simply say that I do think it's difficult to destroy records, but administrations have certainly tried. Uh, I've found this in my research, how often it is that they try to do this. And they often don't destroy everything, but they make it very hard to get at the facts and get at the truth. And this is something to, to be concerned about in a world where most records are now electronic and where a lot of what is done is done by text messaging, not even by email. So I am concerned about this. I know the National Archives is very concerned about this and the Trump administration has been non-cooperative on this. I, I'm worried about two other things that we haven't talked about. One has to do with a foreign policy crisis. Uh, I wrote about this in foreign policy recently. Um, I think foreign actors recognize the United States is not only divided right now, but deeply preoccupied, and that probably for the first time in recent history, we have a president uh, who really isn't focused on foreign policy, doesn't care about foreign policy, uh, and uh, is, not, is, is not paying attention. I don't know who's paying attention. We don't have a Secretary of Defense who's paying attention right now. And this is an opening, I fear, for foreign actors to try to uh, do aggressive maneuvers and measures, undertake actions that they're seeking to undertake, uh, believing the United States is not in a place to respond. I, I look to and fear that North Korea will test another uh, nuclear missile of one kind or another, uh, that Russia will act more aggressively in Ukraine and uh, in the Middle East. I fear more violence in Nagorno-Karabakh, and we're not in a position to respond to that. And second point, uh, the Chinese right now are using this moment to highlight how degenerate democracy is in their view. This is the best propaganda the Chinese Communist Party could have, and I expect that we will see them not weighing in on U.S. politics, but exploiting this for their own purposes, and that is uh, making our international position much worse going forward. Uh, and someone needs to speak out about that right now. And David, from 20 Seconds, what is the one thing we haven't mentioned that you're watching? Um, as a watch that the president doesn't just disappear to Florida and stay there for the uh, remainder of the transition. David from of the Atlantic, Jeremy Surrey of the University of Texas at Austin, Anita Kumar of Politico, thanks to all of you for sharing your, your reporting and your insights. We really, really appreciate it. Also to our listeners for their questions and comments. Thanks to Ariana Prail and Susan Britton for producing today's segments. I'm Mina Kim. You're listening to Forum. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.